to Deep Overstock Presents Origin of Life. This is Robert Eversman. And this is Mickey Collins. Deep Overstock Presents is a new podcast that will feature readings from our quarterly journal as well as special events. For this Origin of Life series, we'll hear our authors reading their own work. This Origin of Life issue is special because it is the start of our second run through PALS. Each issue of Deep Overstock is themed based on a section of PALS City of Books and we do an issue for every room from pearl to blue to coffee to green, choosing a different department category every time through. And we're right around the corner from our third year of publishing. May 1st, 2021 will mark three years of Deep Overstock releases. Mickey, before we move on, can we have a hint about the next issue after Animals? Well, I don't know, Bobby. I think uh, that theme will remain a mystery. Oh man, okay Mickey. Well, we'll work on animals first. But this week, for Origin of Life, we will be featuring Californian and Origin Story by Desiree Ducharme and Kami by Michael Santiago. Our first reader, Desiree Ducharme, spends her days imagining pleasant and unpleasant nonsense and then writing it down. Her semi-voluntary, health-adjacent, potentially permanent sabbatical from her dream job as a used book buying dragon at Powell's City Books has freed up a lot of her time. She washed her dreams and became a writer. You can find more of her work at her website, DesireeDesharm.com. Californian. Tanning season begins in late January. The first days of midterm break are dedicated to studying forecasts. Risks are analyzed. Gas money is produced. Stories are straightened. Lies are told. The locals have not yet shed their winter suits. The sand is warm at midday. We bury our feet and pull it into us. Our bodies are not yet. Limbs that were have continued beyond hems. Knees peek through white cotton shutters framed by neat denim fringe. Middles are filled with Diet Pepsi and Snickers. Pale and soft, we expose our most vulnerable pieces to each other, side by side with our eyes closed, hoping, hating, accepting, being. Someone passes around chemicals for our outsides, coconut, salt, and surf wax. Someone passes. Chemicals race through our insides. Mama Cass and I dream little dreams. Starlight penetrates our layers, dermis, epidermis, subcutaneous. I can feel it in my bones. You cannot hide from starlight. It remembers the pieces of us that used to be, that could be. It embraces us. It embraces all, new and ancient. My heartbeat slows to the rhythm of the tide. The ocean sings to me. It invites, it lures. The siren song of the Pacific, striking a chord along the 115th perpendicular in the key of the 32nd parallel. Seagulls circle the abandoned remains of dormant fire pits. The wind hums against the cliffs. Starlight wanes. Salt and sand polish our skins. Shuttered lifeguard stations absolve the state of our reckless behavior. We were out of season, out of place, out of time. It's dangerous. This place, this state, this being. This playground for the soul with its cacophony of existence. Swim at your own risk. Long ago, the universe expanded, a vast, swirling chaos. The star was pure light and heat radiating into the nothingness around it. It gathered bits of all the elements into itself, 
It consumed and burned and illuminated. The light of the other stars blinked at it from far away. The sun winked back and new loneliness. The next bit of swirling chaos was a screamer. The sphere of mostly rock startled the sun as it whizzed past. The star made ready to consume it and turn the silence to the void. The sphere was too far away, but close enough that the star could hear it. It wasn't screaming. It was singing. Indeed, the star could feel the sameness within itself and the sphere. The sphere was cold and dark. The star flared and lit the sphere. It followed the spark of itself as it receded. The, sun, the song faded, but the star tracked its own light. It could see others streaking through the void. The star discovered the language of the spheres and was less lonely. The rock-turned comet returned. It slowed and came closer. They talked while they could. The comet thanked the star for the gift of light and warmth. In gratitude, it showed the star how to call the spheres without consuming them. The star asked it to stay, but it could not. It did not have time to explain physics to the star. It was collecting universal goo. But it would come around again soon. Then it was gone. The star gathered several spheres and became the sun. Some were gas, like itself. Some were cold rock, like the comet. When the comet returned, the sun pulled a good-sized sphere into its path. They collided. The sun was delighted at its cleverness. Now the comet could stay and talk to the star-turned sun. The comet lost its song and dropped a whole mess of universal goo. The sphere consumed it, and chaos began inside itself. The comet lost its song and dropped a whole mess of universal goo. The sphere consumed it, and chaos began inside itself. The comet tumbled around it, trying to regain its momentum, but physics was part of the universal goo that had been dropped. It set about trying to gather its knowledge, but the sun was too bright, and it could only see shadows on the sphere. It slowed and cooled and got a bit of a sulk on. The sun knew regret. It felt the silence of the moon's becoming, the pain of its growing stillness. It suffered the moon's loss as its own. It asked the moon for forgiveness. The moon asked for darkness and silence, so it could see the stars and hear the cosmos. The sun could not dim. It gave the moon the language of the stars, its song, and grew silent. The moon accepted the knowledge and began to glow. Things progressed quickly on the sphere between them. The universal goo was woven into the fabric of the Earth's becoming. The language of the stars from the sun the song of the comets from the moon, and all the universal goo fused with the very elements. It glowed red-orange and black for a time. The black cooled and faded to gray. The sun recognized itself in the rivers of fire. The moon recognized itself in the stone as it cooled. They saw the pieces of themselves in the planet between them. The sun shined and the moon cooled, and the sphere-turned earth crackled cavernous and crisp, it became blue-green. For a time, the planet was chaos. The goo was so spread out that parts of it multiplied faster than others. Some parts were lost, some parts hid themselves away in dark places. Some parts were in the animals. Some of it became part of a new animal that created its own languages. One of these animals translated the language of the spheres, the stars, and the songs of the comets into their language. They used their language to focus the goo, it came to pass that one of these creatures entrusted the universe with her own creation. She spoke the language of the spheres. She knew the songs of the comets. The mother was fluent in the language of the shadows and often walked the realm in between. 
She wanted to share the potential of creation, but she was alone. She created the sisters to share it. She put all of herself into the process, knowing that she would not survive to meet her children. She called on the stars, the spheres, and the goo. She presented the babes to the universe and asked that they protect them. The sun promised to warm them, help them grow. The moon promised to develop their minds and help them become. The earth promised to be their home, to show them how to care for themselves and others. The goo would fill them and make them whole. The mother created three so they could always have a sister, a friend, and an arbitrator. She bonded her creation to that which came before, hope, spoken in all the languages. She added the first word to the universal lexicon and cast the first spell. Her last breath became their first. She had only this one breath to give them their entire history. Why she made this choice, the reason for their existence. She knew that the noise of the moment she knew that the noise of the moment of their beginning, they would most likely only hear the last word or two. She, clo she chose her words carefully. She translated them into the new universal lexicon. One breath, one spell, one answer, all of her knowledge of existence in a single exhale. I hope you love. She ceased to be, and the sisters began. They were filled with her light, all of them. The earth, the star, the moon, the sisters, and the goo. At this moment, the goo knew love. Universal lexicon. Hope. Love. Death. Life. The sisters grew with the world, but they were not of it. The sun kept, the la kept them laughing in the day. The moon taught them secrets in the night. They spoke with the voices of the animals. They sang with the song of the sea. They read the stars and listened to the trees. Together, they held the secrets of the universe. Apart from the world, they were becoming one. In their oneness, the sisters were growing apart. One sister ran ahead of the others. She touched the sea first, rolled faster, drank deeper. She woke first, jumping at the first rays of dawn. She was the first to sleep, having spent herself in the day. Her eyes grew dark, warm, insatiable. One sister fell behind the others. She struggled to keep pace with the first. She was slow to start and last to wake. She was the last to stop. She told jokes that she learned from the moon. She walked in the shadows. Her eyes grew bright, pale, painful in the day. One stayed behind them. She soothed her quick sister's sores, sometimes carrying her through the shadows when she tired. She discovered the secrets hidden by the moon. She conversed with the roots beneath her. She listened to the waters. She walked in the shadows with her slow sister, binding her eyes against the light. One eye dark, one warm, pale, and cool. She walked in the shadows with her slow sister, binding her eyes against the light. One eye dark and warm, the other pale and cool. There came a time when the moon followed them into the day. They showed it all the wonder and weird and wild that noisily scurried and hurried. That night, the moon was missing. The sisters studied the universe that they could not see before. They grew cold as they studied. The water warned them to keep moving, or they would freeze. It spoke of others. The sisters grew cold. They stumbled in the dark. The sister between spoke the language of the shadows. She called them to her. She put them in her eyes and radiated light from within. 
Curiosity sparked. They each tried it in turn, passing the shadow-cloaked eyes between them. The sisters explored creation in the darkness. The sun could not find them the next day. Their laughter did not chase it through the sky. It grew worried. It remembered the first day. It remembered loneliness before the moon. The sun remembered death. The moon rose early. They talked of death and loneliness. The sun was worried the sisters may leave them, as the mother had. The sun was late in setting. In the darkness, the moon could hear the sisters. They were laughing deep in the ground. The moon called to them. The sisters emerged, shadow-cloaked and glowing with curiosity. The moon could see them. They were beautiful. They told the moon of the creation underground, a creation that did not need the sun or the moon. They sang of the life they discovered in the dark. The moon had missed the lighting of the spark and felt cheated. They were using the secrets the moon had given them. They were learning without the moon. They were laughing and warm without the sun. The moon grew distant. What would they become? It knew doubt and fear. The sister between wanted to know more about the earth. She listened to the streams and roots. She questioned the rocks. She explored a cave. Her sisters promised to stay close to each other and wait for her. The sun called to the day sister. She ran after it as always. The night sister ran after but fell behind and became lost. The day sister went to find her, was distracted by butterflies, and forgot. The sister between emerged from the ground, the sister's new longing. The sister between emerged from the ground alone, and the sister's new longing. The day sister asked the sun to help her. The sun lied and kept the sister for itself. The night sister asked the moon to help her. The moon lied and kept this sister for itself. The sister between knew abandonment. She could, she could see the sun and the moon, but they did not answer her. She called to the earth. The earth sent her the shadows. The shadows told the sister between of the decision made by the sun and the moon. She was of the earth now, and her sisters were not. She sat in the center of the valley and began to cry. The earth knew empathy. A spring bubbled to the surface. An orchid blossomed and spoke to her. It sang the story of the mother. The shadows wrapped themselves around her. She could feel her oneness, her sameness with her sisters. And the shadows, and the earth. The shadows felt it too. They became a part of it. Together they knew compassion. Apart, the sisters discovered comfort in the shadows. The orchid gave the sister between the universal lexicon. With hope that she would add to it. Curiosity sparked and the sister between remembered her potential. The sister between knew gratitude. Being a sister, she offered to share. Orchid asked the sister between for creation. The shadows agreed to be the material. The sister between repeated her mother's spell. They named it Oberon, and chaos ensued. That was Desiree Descharmes reading Californian and Origin Story. And closing this reading is Michael Santiago, a serial expat, avid traveler, and writer of all kinds. Originally from New York City and later relocating to Rome in 2016 and Nanjing in 2018, he enjoys the finer things in life like walks on the beach 
existential conversations and swapping murder mystery ideas. An aspiring author, he is keen on exploring themes of humanity within fiction. Kami by Michael Santiago. Do you remember the day you died? I do. It was that fateful night I stood watch atop the cliff. The cliff I had fond memories of from childhood. It overlooked the sea. The sound of waves cracked at the base as the wind howled below with the sharp scent of cherry blossoms in full bloom. The horizon spanned endlessly. This was meant to be. A portrait painted by the gods. But behind me, my village was in flames. Our wooden houses were the perfect fuel, and the hay that laced the roof gave the fire life. Echoes of agony pierced the night. Kasuya would be no more. Our home was now in ashes. Blood trickled down my brow. An arrow protruded out of my left shoulder and another out of my thigh. My body was broken, mangled, but my soul endured. It had to. In front of me, my wife and child. Their lifeless bodies were strewn across a patch of blood-stained grass. Slain by the invading horde, I could not save them. I could not save my people. Death was imminent, and so I knelt and prayed to the gods as the embers of my home dissipated. Stand, Takeda, spoken in a soft, shallow tone. Su, Lord Sukuyomi, I hesitantly replied. Yes, husband of Amaterasu and emissary of the moon, you, Takeda, will not be defeated just yet. You still have some fight in you. Now, pick up your sword, go back to the village, and bring me their heads. For this... I will make you a kami, Sukuyomi persuaded. Kami, but I am just a mortal. What of my wife and child? I muttered with a confused look. Yes, kami, I have been watching you for a long time. Of all the warriors in this land, you, Takeda, stand with honor, and vengeance sparks your soul. Your family will become kami, but not the same as you. For you are bound to become one of vengeance, a life born anew, if you act out as I have instructed. Though I warn you, the path will be muddled, and an unlikely foe will present itself, Sukiyomi proclaimed. As I began to stand, I gripped my sword firmly and nodded in agreement. Okay, I will act out and slay those savages as you have instructed, I said, tucking my blood-stained sword under my armpit. I pulled it out gently to cleanse it of savage blood. Yomi. Maki. I will be back. You will not wait long for me. I said to my family as I mounted my horse. My steed galloped as hard and as fast as her worn body could allow. She too was littered with arrows. But she was always trusting. Her breathing was faint and I knew this would be our last ride together. Her tattered limbs would make it as far as the village. This was certain. Ha. Huh. Another man to throw onto the pyre. Let them burn. They did not understand Mongol might. For this was their greatest mistake. The Khan will be pleased to hear Kasuya and these animals are burning. He warned they would not submit. That Stamurai were a stubborn breed. Inu. That is what the Khan referred to them as. Yet they are not as smart as dogs. Just loyal to a fault. A gruff Mongol spoke. You are wrong, Mongol. 
Dogs and samurai share more than you think. Fierce, devoted, honorable. You vermin, on the other hand, are treacherous boars who see no sense in anything other than your own savagery. I yelled as I dismounted. Look, another wayward samurai hoping to stand against us. Why do you fight us so vehemently? Why resist? Do you see anyone around that's going to aid this fruitless plight of yours? The Mongol responded. Unsheathing my sword, I raised it above my head and charged forward, slashing the throats of two and beheading a third. I pointed my blade at the Mongol that spoke with misplaced fervency. Good enough for you, Mongol. I spoke with a dead stare. No, not good enough. He spoke. He spat on the floor and blew into the cattle horn for reinforcements. What is your name, Samurai? I want to know so that we can share the story of the dog that bit its masters after we conquer this land. He said with a cynical grin. Takeda. And that name will be the last you utter. I replied. With a swift motion forward, I severed the head of that pig who spoke so ill of our people. The mongrel collapsed and his head rolled across the ground. It tumbled along the soot from our homes like a tumbleweed. The samurai is over there, a mongol shouted. My gaze shifted over to our homes that were still burning, and I could see droves of mongols running to my position. I whistled for my horse, but just as she began trotting to me, an arrow zipped past me. She screamed and fell on her side. This arrow was lodged into her neck. There was nothing I could do to save her. I whispered, Thank you. You have been the most loyal creature. The kami will look after you as you fade into the next life. I took out my sword once more and planted it into her neck. She struggled, kicked, but this was the best thing for her now. Her suffering and her service had come to an end. Samurai on your feet, a Mongol ordered. A few meters behind me, a dozen Mongols snarled and clasped their swords. I rose and turned around, staring at a group of executioners ready to end my life. I was not afraid. I did not fear death. I welcomed it. With a sly grin, I ran towards them with my sword ready. Takeda, stop! A voice screamed behind the men. I came to a grinding halt and looked on. Toyotomi. What? What are you doing with these vile beasts? I yelled back. My brother Toyotomi was clad with Mongol gear as he brandished a lance he could hardly wield. He looked pleased with himself, snickering and snarling back in my direction. He looked like an antimid oxen, much smaller in structure than the overgrown Mongols. He was out of place. There's no use for samurai in the Khan's vision, brother. This way of life is outdated. Our country is always at war. We are always fighting for our lords who are too afraid to fend for themselves. Under Khan, we will be unified. He has already conquered much of China and the Korean Peninsula. Our island is yet a pebble in the vast sea of his dominion. This will be the new way of things for our people. If you choose to follow us, Toyotomo, Tomi, confidently spoke. As a child, Toyotomi was always the run of the litter. He never fit in. He could barely raise a sword above his head, and now he was holding a lance much bigger than himself. His brother can never be a samurai. 
I wondered to myself what these Mongols had offered him for this betrayal. There you go again, Takeda. Always in your head. Scheming. Plotting. Oh wait. This time it was me who was smarter than you. There you go again, Takeda. Always in your head. Scheming. Plotting. Oh wait. This time it was me who was smarter than you. No longer the runts. I have finally filled my boots. Never good enough to stand like a samurai, but here I am. A Mongol warrior. I led them here, brother. I told them when to attack and how. He said with a smile. Brother, I would dissuade you from this path, but your treachery has claimed the lives of our people. My wife and daughter, your niece, was slain by these brutes. I replied. Toyotomi began pacing back and forth in front of the group, gripping his lance with both hands. Charging forward, he thrust his weapon towards his kin. Unable to land a blow, he got increasingly frustrated and ordered the Mongol brutes to attack. They laughed but complied. Takeda dodged and parried attacks from all sides. He jumped back as a mace swung close to his face. Ducking, he sliced the shins of the men surrounding him. His katana moved effortlessly in his hands as he slit the throat of one foe to the next. In a flurry of swift strikes, the brutes collapsed. Account four. Are you going to continue to let these Mongols do the fighting for you, brother? I stated. As Takeda began to laugh at his younger brother, a sense of dread loomed over him. He knew that Tsukuyomi had foreshadowed this very moment, that the path he set out on was not what he would have expected. Once more, Toyotomi, disheveled, threw his lance around aimlessly, tired from his maniacal friendly frenzy. Once more, Toyotomi disheveled, threw his lance around aimlessly, tired from his maniacal frenzy, he fell to his knees. The remaining Mongols looked on, baffled and awestruck by the display. Will you not help your brother to his feet? Toyotomi questioned. As Takeda made his way to his brother, he placed the sword in his sheath and extended his hand out. Fool! He shouted. A well-placed dagger lodged its way into Takeda's neck. I should have known. I whispered. I'll remember this day when Kasuya fell and the Khan rose, when brothers fought, when I became more than what you saw. He snickered. Silence, you dog, will you? A Mongol said to another. With a single swipe of a Mongol sword, Toyotomi froze as his body was split in two. Thank you. I had enough of his intolerable wailing. The Khan would never honor someone so disgraceful. Another Mongol stated. Bleeding out, I began to tremble. Walking towards one of the Mongol horses, I placed one foot into the stirrup and rode back to the clef as the Mongols looked on. The steed was now bathed in my blood. As it came to the foot of the cliff, I fell off. Lying next to my wife and daughter, I began to pray once more. Sukuyomi, I am dying. Have I fulfilled at least to some degree what you asked? I asked. Yes, within reason. I will allow what transpired to make you a kami. Your life will be born anew, and you will be in servitude to me. 
as a spirit of vengeance. With this, your life, your new life, now starts here. Sukuyomi professed. Thank you. Grant the souls of my family safe passage, please. I begged. Let it be so. He spoke. As I bled out next to my family, I thought of those fond childhood memories atop the cliff. This is how it would end. This was the day I died, and the day I was born again. That was Michael Santiago reading Kami. That's it for episode two of Deep Overstock Presents Origin of Life. The Origin of Life issue is now on sale through deepoverstock.com. Check out our other podcasts, Late Night Poems and the Deep Overstock Fiction Podcast. And please remember to submit work for our 12th issue, Rose Room Animals, for November 30th. And tune in next week for episode three of Deep Overstock Presents, featuring work from Aaron Karbuski and E.T. Starband.